singer-songwriter Matt Targa. Thanks for joining us. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert-goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is a Kansas City and Nashville-based artist and director of a and a staff songwriter with music publisher Amar Music Group. And recently, his original songs have been recorded by pop singer Taylor Mack and country artist Jim Martin. He is one Rick Gordon. In a career spanning five decades, Rick has forged an innovative and original Americana alt-country sound. Rick moved to New York City's Greenwich Village as a 17-year-old singer-songwriter in 1970, where he honed his craft. Next, landing in Nashville in 1976 as an up-and-coming record producer, where he co-produced three releases with country music Hall of Fame producer Fred Foster on historic label Monument Records. Rick released his debut album, Just Can't Get Enough, in 1980, and has now released 16 albums and EPs under various monikers, ranging from punk rock to electronic music to folk and Americana. In 1983, Rick stepped away from the music business to raise a family. He earned a PhD in physics and spent the next 20 years in the corporate world as a scientist and executive. Rick returned to the music business full-time in 2007, founding indie label Russian Winter Records in 2008. From 2011 to 2019, Rick also published the Floorshime Zipper Boots music blog, featuring daily reviews of releases from emerging artists worldwide. During its operation, the blog published 2,300 features. In 2018, Rick launched his second independent label, Buffalo Burger Records is a home for his special projects focused on Americana and acoustic music. He produced the debut album from Nashville stalwart Jim Martin and the debut single from Midwest folk duo Berman Pearson. Over his career, Rick has produced 54 albums and EPs by 26 different artists. So without further ado, let's welcome Rick Gordon to the program. Rick, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on Cover to Cover today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about The Velvet Underground and Nico, which was released in March of 1967. What made you choose this particular record from The Velvet Underground? Well, it's their debut, number one. And there's there's an old story in the music business that every person that bought this record started a band. And that's probably not very far off from the truth. Um, it was a, it was a life changing record for me as a musician. You know, before the Velvet Underground, everybody was sort of playing the Beatles and Mersey Beat. You know, the Beatles, Dave Clark Five, The Searchers, that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, '66, we started becoming aware of what was going on in Laurel Canyon and the Buffalo Springfield and that. But when the Velvet Underground came out, it was just unlike anything. It was raw to the point of an open sore. And, you know, it just it just was completely different. And, uh, of course, all of garage music, all of punk music owes its heritage to this album now. And uh, and so, it you know, it was for me, it was 
uh, a life changer. My band at the time were the only band in town doing things like Sister Ray <laughs> and uh, some of the other less savory songs that the the Velvets were putting out. And uh, so, you know, it just it just really changed everything. We did heroin, much to the chagrin of every place that hired us, and. Uh, it was it was just one of those wonderful life changing records, and it was a big re- part of the reason why I went to New York as a seventeen year old. Although I was very firmly in the folk scene at the time that I moved to New York, um, I never ceased trying to get myself into the factory, um, and never never successfully. I actually made it to the front door one night, and uh, the guy I went with got in, but the the guy at the door turned me away, but at least I, I was able to actually see inside. <laughs> for, for all of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the factory, can you describe what that venue, a little bit about what that venue was like or what might have been happening on the inside? Sure. Um, nothing legal, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the factory was was basically Andy Warhol's home and studio. It was a huge loft at the top of a building in Greenwich Village. Um, the Velvet Underground were the house band. And uh, the factory was the center of the art scene in New York City, the art scene in the village. And everybody who was trendy, fashionable, and in some way caught Warhol's eye, spent the better part of their days and nights at the factory, which is, which is what it was called. Uh, it was just a place like unlike anywhere else. <laughs> we are talking with Rick Gordon on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarkas, specifically about the March 1967 record from the Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, Rick, can you tell our listeners who comprises the band at this junction or juncture excuse me in their uh career yeah i sure can and you know the velvet underground never really changed very much over the course of their existence um it it was founded by two people lou reed who most most of your listeners i would think should know and john kale who they should also know but maybe maybe they don't um Lou Reed, of course, was a seminal figure in American music, particularly in in underground American music and and American music that veered from the the mainstream, although he did have quite a bit of mainstream success uh, with songs that were utterly impossible and amazing to hear on mainstream. I'm sure his record label hated every album he delivered. Uh, But... John Cale was a very seminal figure in the punk movement. He was one of these guys that could play any instrument. All he had to do was pick it up and he could play it. And so John Cale and and uh, Lou Reed founded the band. They had a rhythm guitar player named Sterling Morrison, who also went on to really stay active in the business for a number of years. They had probably the first female drummer in rock, Mo Tucker, Maureen Tucker. And uh, 
just, you know, very, very groundbreaking. There weren't a lot of female drummers anywhere. There weren't a lot of female musicians actually playing other than Carol Kay out on the West Coast. And so it was, was real unique for them to have a female drummer at that time. And then there's Nico. And uh, Nico only sang a few songs on this album. Um, she was never really part of the Velvet Underground. She was on the album because Woody, um, Woody, because of, of uh, Andy Warhol wanting her to be on the album. She's listed as Chanteuse, which I think is a very good description of her role. She, she was an okay singer. She wasn't a great singer. She was a great beauty. And Warhol liked great beauties. Um, he was gay, but but yet he he had a very much an eye and an affinity for beautiful women, and liked to surround himself with beautiful women. And so um, he wanted Nico on this album, and uh, it's the only recordings um, that you really have of her. And and so it's it's important from that standpoint. Uh, I think I said this earlier, you know, there's a, there's an old story that every single person that bought this album started a band. So it was it was very important in the development of rock and roll in the United States. Talking with Rick Gordon here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tark about the Velvet Underground and Nico. And uh, Rick, you mentioned that you went straight to the village in, 19, in 1970 as a 17-year-old. When you first heard the Velvets, when you first heard this record or perhaps um, the, their debut uh, just a year and a half before that, um, can you describe for us exactly what that experience was like for you just consuming this body of music from Lou Reed and John Cale and the rest of the cast and characters? It just made me want to play like that. It, you know, at that time, the repertoire was small. I mean, people, people don't have uh, an idea for how small the repertoire really was. Uh, you know, bands didn't go up and play three hours of different songs. Bands went up and played an, um, a half hour to an hour of different songs and then repeated them every hour to get through a three-hour gig because there, there just weren't that many songs in the repertoire. And so, uh, you know, when... And it was all it was all Beatles and Dave Clark Five and Rolling Stones and Searchers and Hollies and that kind of stuff, uh, which was all very pop. And uh, so, you know, about 65, 66, you started to get these musings from the factory about the Velvet Underground. And then at the same time on the other coast, you started hearing things out of the Buffalo Springfield. Which, which in their own way were just as just as important in, in seeding a whole music scene as the Velvets were, but I was just drawn completely to the rawness of this. I mean, it was unrehearsed. It was not professionally recorded by even the standards of the day, which was pretty much live recording, and. Uh, you know, it was just in, and the subject matter of the songs was absolutely, there was no political, political correctness then, but had there been, these would have been completely politically incorrect in every way. I mean, they sang about, they sang about the homosexual scene. They sang about the drug scene. They sang about heterosexual scene. They sang about infidelity. They sang about crime. Uh, everything, everything that was, 
vibrant and wonderful about New York City they sang about. And so, you know, when I heard them the first time, I was 14 years old and uh, 13 years old, somewhere, somewhere in there. And uh, it was very impressionable. And just to hear this raw, edgy music dealing with all their themes, you gotta, you got to realize how, how straight and uptight things were in 65, 66, and 67. You know, it was, you know, my parents listened to Barbara Streisand. You know? <laughs> it was just, you know, and Jack Jones. It was just a completely different scene. And so, so when my band started playing this music, um, it separated us as as artists from the the entire rest of the scene, uh, but it also freed us as artists to explore um, a completely unrestrained music. Talking with Rick Gordon here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all about the Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, Rick, do you think that once Nico entered the fray? Do you think that this was a real drastic change in sound for the group, or do you think that Nico just just added a completely different dimension to this unruly and chaotic cauldron of music that the Velvets were creating? What, um, how how much changed and how much necessarily you know stayed exactly what they had been searching for in those early years yeah i think most of the album is exactly what the velvets were and and always had been and always have been um she doesn't sing that many songs on the album i think it's four if i remember correctly um and you know there are the songs she's singing are, are written by lou reed and so yeah, it's really interesting to me more than anything. She sounds like one of the French singers of that era. And, uh, you know, if you go out and listen to some of the French pop records being done in the mid six, mid sixties, that's what her style is like to me. So if you can imagine, you know, for your listeners who may not understand that era, if you can imagine a band like the clash, or the Sex Pistols pairing with a French pop singer um, and having them play like they normally play and the French pop singer sing like they normally sing. That's sort of how it ended up. And it was uh, incongruous and beautiful all at the same time. This feels like a good time to talk about some or perhaps all of your favorite tracks. Would you like to go, you know, side by side, A to B? or would you like to pick out just you know a select few on the, on this record? I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be guided by you here. Okay, well we could just start out with Sunday morning because it starts right out with Nico, and, and sure, and so you're hit with you're hit with this fair to midland voice <laughs> at best. I mean she was she was not a great vocalist. Um, and and you know she was a she was a great beauty which which for Warhol was enough and so but she had a deep sort of throaty quality to her voice and so it was compelling in its in its own way and so it's it's fun to have those um, on the record um, for me 
it really all started with I'm Waiting for the Man, the second song on the record. And that is that is everything that everyone would have expected out of Lou Reed. And it's dealing it's dealing with um, very, very base kind of instinctual relationships. It's dealing um, with being in a, in a big city, being in New York City without, without constraints on the way you live your life. And it's just classic Lou Reed. Um, Femme Fatale is, is uh, another one of those that, that sort of has its own, its own persona, given the Warhol influence. Heroin is... For me, the song on the album, um, it's it's everything you couldn't sing about in the 1960s. It's everything you couldn't talk about in the 1960s. And it was unfortunately the center of that scene. I'm, I'm always thankful that I never got into that part of the scene. I always seemed to know where the, to draw the line. Uh, and I had lots of friends that got into that scene, and, and it was never nice. But but that out that song really defines the lifestyle uh, around the factory, and and the lifestyle around even the jazz clubs at that time, for that matter. But uh, that's that's sort of the song for me. Um, there she goes again, the song that follows it up, you know, the sequencing, you know, today in the days of streaming, sequencing doesn't mean much, you know, because bands put out a single and that's all anybody ever hears. But, you know, back in the day where albums were meaningful, the sequencing of an album was an art in its, in its own right, which song followed what other song. And so you have Heroin, which is song number seven on the album, and it's followed up by There She Goes Again, which was the closest thing to a hit Nico ever had. It's one of those songs that people hear and they think, oh, I've heard that, and and part, partly because it sounds like every uh, pop chanteuse kind of song you've ever heard, and partly because they might have actually heard it because it was sort of, sort of a hit, not a hit in a radio sense, but certainly a hit in terms of um, the music press, Rolling Stone and and the, the Times and the people that wrote about such things getting into it. But it, it always just killed me that it followed heroin because here you had this stark punk song. And of course, there were, we were 10 years away from punk, but you had this stark punk song dealing with being addicted to heroin and the lifestyle around that culture, followed up by, there she goes, there she goes again. You know, it's just every, every pop piece of crap ever written. <laughs> We're talking with Rick Gordon here, all about the Velvet Underground and Nico here on Cover to Cover with Matt Target. I Rick, I have to admit, the first time I ever heard heroin, it frightened me. You know, not just not just the subject matter, but just the the screeching of guitars, the screeching of viola. Just there was just something. I mean that that song, if it if anything defines avant garde. That that has to be the, the track. <laughs> First time we played it in my band, we were asked to go home. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
was not uh, was not what the club we were it, we were playing in an eight, 18 club and you got to realize I I got a union card at 14 so I was I was a professional musician at 14 and I I play these clubs and and during the break you know I could be in there while we were playing but during the break I'd have to go out and sit in the car because I couldn't be in the club and you know we're we're playing this club and I'm lead guitarist and lead singer. And we're, we're doing heroin. <laughs> and we get done with that song. And the club owner go, comes up and says, you know, you know we, we, that's not what we want. I'm, you guys have to stop. We're, you guys just have to stop. <laughs> and we <laughs> Are are there any lyrics that stand out for you in particular? Whether it's uh, whether it's heroin, waiting for the man, um, run, 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 there she goes again. Um, just a little bit of an observation about there she goes again. Uh, <laughs> briefly, it, it, it kind of reminds me of somewhere in between, like a Rolling Stone and and uh, Jimmy Cliff's Struggling Man, uh, rhythmically. I don't know how that came to mind, but. Uh, I, I get the sense that the Velvets, you know, certainly could have influenced Jimmy Cliff in some way, shape, or form. Oh, I'm I'm sure they did. They influenced everybody. Yeah, and and it does sort of have that feel. If you can imagine it being sung by Mary Tyler Moore or somebody like that, you know, on the Dick Van Dyke Show, or or you know, some uh, yeah, imagine imagine it being sung now by you know who's Alicia Keys. You know, with 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 you know a punk band as her backup band, uh, just, just something you might hear in the grocery store. Yeah, yeah, it's just very different, and I don't know that any lyrics really jump out at me on this. It's been a long time since I've really just sat and thought about the lyrics of this. Um, I certainly can understand how John Cale's viola playing and all his other screechy instruments he put in uh, could scare you my wife still leaves the room if if i play a lot of this album <laughs> because of that it, it is a very stark very edgy album uh and, and mo tucker's drumming specifically on heroin it re- it mimics a, a heart beating faster and faster better than anything i have ever heard sonically it does and i mean when when you think of of you know the present day in indie music and and particularly the present day in indie punk um you just you just hear a lot of that you hear you hear a lot of the the screechy guitars you hear a lot of the very heartbeat drum particularly bass drum and toms and uh, you know it all. It all goes back to the Velvets. We're talking with Rick Gordon here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, specifically about the Velvet Underground and Nico's record from 1967. And uh, Rick, this was a moment in time before the Summer of Love. If we can just like scene set, you know, just a little bit. This record was released in March of 67. This is pre-Monterey Pop, Woodstock, a real sort of utopian look at the world from a pop culture you know, point of view, you know, musically, the whole nine yards. And uh, Andy Warhol at the factory introduced this project as the exploding plastic inevitable. Yes. 
and and this was you know this was pre summer of love this was pre um the hippie movement expanding out of california and uh, so you know the summer of love was 1968 um call it that mainly because the pill had been invented uh which changed everything but uh you know warhol was about doing the wrong thing at the right time you know that's probably the best way to describe it you know the you know the beatles sort of toyed with that a bit around the same time you know plasticine pam and some of those songs um but but warhol liked the dirty side of the new york city culture he liked capturing that in his films if and if you ever have a chance to see a warhol film or or basquiat's film um they're very stark they're very they're very unprofessional they're very handheld and they're very real in in a in a sense that you unlike the kind of any kind of realism that you really get in in cinema or or video nowadays um but he also liked the plastic and you see that so much in his art be- between the pop art you know the the Campbell soup cans or the Marilyn Monroe series or his series of self portraits all of that he really liked capturing what he considered the plastic part of our culture the culture that was manufactured um versus the real street part of our culture that that uh, he thought was was the center of of everything that was that was true and good and and you know we got a lot of that today we have a very plastic culture nowadays um that is very very centered on on manufactured themes whether it's whether it's the the manufactured essence of the music business or or film or tv there's there's just not a lot of authenticity not a lot of realism out there and and warhol was was incredibly authentic as as much as his scene was completely manufactured and in its own way nothing real ever happened at the factory it was a completely manufactured scene um everyone was authentic in their own little shell their own persona their own costume their own face that they showed to the world and that's very much the velvets you hear that in their music i mean this is not a band that that would have gotten a major label deal or released a record on a major label had it not been for Warhol. In thinking about just just a lyric here, you you know, we were talking a little bit about waiting for the man and I wonder how this is a bit of a non sequitur here. I, I'm wondering how antithetical the, the Velvets wanted to be while they were collaborating with Andy Warhol. There's a lyric in here that says, Baby don't you holler darling, don't you ball and shout. I'm feeling good. You know, I'm going to work it on out. I wonder if that was their way of satirizing the Beatles' twist and shout. Um, I, I don't know. It very well could have been. Um, you know, the, Beatle, the Beatles were not a music that was resonating on the streets of Greenwich Village. 
Um, they weren't then. They weren't when I got there. That's just not the, the scene. That was the scene resonating with the teenagers over in New Jersey or upstate or, you know, Connecticut or up on, on you know, in Midtown on the east or west side. It, it was not what was going on in the village. And, you know, the village was just the edgiest place in the world, you know, hitting there. I, uh, I moved there right after I graduated high school. It was actually a month before I turned 17. So I was still 16 years old, didn't know anybody, didn't have a place to live, just knew, you know, to be in the music business and had a real career at that time. New York was the, the place to be. And, uh, and the village was just a completely self-contained scene, um, and you never really got out of there. You didn't. You didn't play. You know, there was nothing in Brooklyn at that time, but but uh, an old Jewish community, uh, and and you know, uptown was was uptown, and so you know, you never went uptown because you didn't own a tuxedo, and uh, so the village and Soho. To, to some extent, but, but really the village was this entire self-contained scene of folk clubs and jazz clubs. And, uh, and then there's, there started to be some hints of, of some rock going on, certainly the Velvets, and, but not much, not much past them. And they were, they were still around and still there. You had, uh, you had the, the early days of people like David Peel and the Beatle Maniacs that I remember very well that used to be the house band of Kenny's Castaways um, in the village. And, and you had the start of pe- things like, like the New York Dolls and, and uh, those kinds of things just in their infancy. Uh, but, but nothing like it would be, you know, five, six years later. Talking with Rick Gordon here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all about the Velvet Underground and Nico. And uh, Rick, I wanted to share something here that's in the liner notes uh, right now. This was an article that uh, was published in the Los Angeles Times, probably just you know right around the time that this record was released, and it just feels like a really fun and accurate representation of what was happening. And here's here's the quote. Not since the Titanic ran into that iceberg has there been such a collision as when Andy Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable burst upon the audiences at the Trip Tuesday. For once, a happening really happened, and it took Warhol to come out from New York to show how it's done. The Velvet Underground is so far out that it makes the tremendous thumping beat of the great groovy group which opened the program sound passe. That that says it really well. I mean, if you can, you know, you have to put it in the context of the scene in L.A. at that time. And the scene in L.A. at that time was was Laurel Canyon, all this nice, soft music, the the Buffalo Springfield, which, you know, led to Poco and and the birds. And, and, you know, uh, it was it was all all the electrification of of folk 
and the the birth of folk rock and that wasn't the velvets you know and and the velvets when i think of the velvets and you know and i think about my band at that time it was the velvets and it was iggy pop iggy and the stooges and it was the mc5 out of detroit and those were those were the three bands that you know we still played some of the some of the Poppier stuff because because you had to but but you know those were the three bands the Velvet Underground Iggy and the Stooges and the MC Five and and you know you know MC Five kick out the jams I don't know what we can say on your show and what we can't but uh, some days it gets an E rating for explicit but we could <laughs> we could keep it PG if you'd like okay so you know the the. The MC5 album starts out, kick out the jams, mofos. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and we used to do that much to the chagrin of places. We were doing an, an outdoor show in the parking lot of a shopping center. And uh, it had been an all-day show of rock bands doing all this, you know, Beatles, you know, Dave Clark Five, Searchers, Buffalo Springfield, Poco Birds, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we're the headliners and we're, we're starting out. And we had told the guy that was that was promoting this this day show that we were going to start out with MC5's Kick Out the Jams. And he didn't take us seriously. And... Uh, so we decided rather than just start with the, the vocal by itself, I gave it a da 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 da, which is how the song starts after the intro. And then our lead singer ran to the mic and, and yelled, kick out the jams. And then at that point, the guy's running up like this, no, 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 no. And so, so Mark leans down at him and says, brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah wonderful that's wonderful so great yeah. yeah yeah we are talking with rick gordon here from on a cover to cover with bad tarkas specifically about the velvet underground and nico and rick i'd like to to close our conversation with a question about cover art and um <laughs> we live in this wild we live in this wild west so to speak where Cover art, you know, no matter how much time has gone on, is always it's always there. It's always supporting a new piece of art, whether it's digital or physical media. W- when you look at this record, which was designed by Andy Warhol, uh, what kinds of images are conjured up in your mind when you when you look at <laughs> this body of work? Yeah, well, you know, only Warhol could put a banana on the front of an album. You know, that's that. Yeah. I mean, that's very Warhol. Um, it's just it's just interesting to contrast it. You know, um, I'm doing a lot of work in in commercial country now, and so you know, I think about the cover to Marin Morris's "Girl," and you couldn't you couldn't get two records farther apart than than stylistically or cover art. And uh, you know, cover art used to be a great art form when you when you look at at Really, anybody's covers, Jethro Tull, the Eagles, any bands, you know, of that era, there were all these artists who did nothing but cover art. And and it was really, you know, a a very high art form. Um, 
today our cover art is 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 sort of going the way of the albums. Albums are not very uh, very meaningful anymore, and cover art isn't very meaningful anymore. It's it's more of a marketing ec- exercise. You don't have you don't have bands and music industry moguls deciding which artist is going to create this great piece of art to go on the cover. You have a bunch of marketing cats sitting around in a room selling, you know, what's, you know, so our, our market is 13 to 24 year olds. What, what can we show, you know, which, which skirt or which top that, you know, that's bare down to the, to the waist or is going to sell the most albums if people see it um, versus creating cover art in it's a shame, but you know, I mean, it's a business. The music business is a business, and I, I, I tell people that all the time. It's, it's even back then. I mean, you know, again, you look at those three groups: the Velvet Underground, Iggy, and the Stooges, and MC5, and they have very little to do with business, um, and everything to do with art for the sake of art, and, uh, and. You could you could get away with such things then. You can't get away with such things now. Everything's gotten too big, too expensive. It's sort of all lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my! Rick Gordon, it has been such a great pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you so very much for spending some time with us, talking about the Velvet Underground, and thanks for just sharing a record that you know is so meaningful to you, and it's stood the test of time. Thank thank you so much. My pleasure. And I, I really appreciate being on it. And I would encourage your listeners to go out and listen to the Velvet Underground if they hadn't and uh, turn it up loud and annoy their neighbors. All right. My special thanks to Rick Gordon for taking some time to stop by our program today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you so very much. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Stitcher, Google Play, Apple, or TuneIn. Take a moment to tell some of your friends or some of your family about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That'll certainly help us appear higher in search results. And as always, feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.